This morning's study is entitled Parting Things to Do. We might even say Peter's parting to-do list. There's several things on the list. I don't know if you have a to-do list where there's things that have to be done today. There's things that have to be done throughout the week. There's things that you have to get done before you die. Those are some of the things that we're going to be talking about on the list. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, one of the reasons why I bring this up is because when these words are done and Peter is finished, these are the last words of Peter, the parting words. He says in verse 15, and consider that the long suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you. As also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of the scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware lest you also fall from your own steadfastness. Being led away with the error of the wicked, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. Peter puts on the list a gentle reminder To be patient because Christ is coming. To exercise discernment because there are false teachers. And that we're to pay attention to the sacred writings or the divine teaching. The list includes warnings and exhortations to grow in grace and in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. In this last chapter of 2 Peter, he reminds the reader... That God's word is true in verses 1 through 4. That God's work is consistent in verses 5 and 7. That God's will is merciful in verses 8 through 10. Now Peter exhorts the suffering saints to be diligent in verses 11 through 18. We're to live godly lives in verses 11 through 14. We are to be diligent to share the good news about Jesus Christ in verses 15 and 16. We're to be diligent to grow spiritually in verses 17 and 18. Four times Peter has called the reader beloved. Beloved, be mindful, he says in verses 1 and 2. Beloved, don't be ignorant in verse 8. Beloved, be diligent in verse 14. And now he says, beloved, beware in verse 17. And by the way, the word beware means be constantly on guard. In law enforcement, we call this vigilance. There are times when we think that we can let our guard down. There are times when we can relax and 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 not have to worry. But he says, I need you to be constantly aware what the suffering saints know the truth about Jesus. But knowledge about Jesus will not provide sufficient protection. Knowing things about the Bible is perhaps the easiest thing in the whole wide world. All you have to do is open up your Bible. It's available to you. You can open it up day or night at any time in any place. But here, what he's talking about is the reality that there is a vigilance that comes when you personally are connected to Christ. As a matter of fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12, Paul writes, Wherefore, let him that thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. The idea being, I'm all right, I'm fine, my family is fine, my faith is fine, my children are fine. Beware. God has done everything 
necessary for us to live genuine lives of peace and joy. We don't have to live lives that are hypocritical or artificial. God has provided us with full salvation in Jesus, not half salvation. We are chosen. We are adopted. We are accepted in the beloved. And so early on in Second Peter, chapter one, verses five through seven, you'll remember that Peter said we're to grow and we're to develop the graces of faith and virtue, of knowledge and self-control, of patience and godliness, of brotherly kindness and love. Also, Peter has said, make sure your calling and election. How do you make sure your calling and your election? You confirm your calling by living in a godly manner. A walk of genuine faith and obedience will give you an inner sense of security and offer evidence to a watching world that your life is different. Your godly life in Christ will keep you from stumbling and keep you from falling. Peter has encouraged the reader to accept the apostolic testimony, to believe the Old Testament prophets, to be prepared for scoffers, anticipate false teachers, live in the light of day, grow in grace and in the knowledge of the truth. So what kind of special dangers did Peter anticipate? Well, believers might be tempted to lose heart. Concerning the coming of Christ in verse 15, believers are vulnerable to be led astray by the error of the wicked in verse 16. And yes, there are make believers and false people who claim to know and love Jesus, but in fact do not. And they are led astray by the error of the wicked. We are not to tolerate false teachers and false teaching. There is no communion between light and darkness, between a lie and the, the truth. Peter himself in Second Peter chapter two, verse 18 says they live in error, not that they have made a mistake, not that they are confused about something. They live in error. In what way? They've abandoned Christ. They've abandoned grace. They've abandoned hope. Believers are also vulnerable to slip into a state of stunted development. And so growth and maturity are linked to worship and discipleship and the exercise of spiritual gifts. Our stability and maturity come from the spirit of God working in cooperation with the word of God and our willingness to yield to the spirit and to allow the word of God to inform us to make practical, biblical, God honoring decisions in verse 18. And so one of the great tragedies of the Western church is a zeal to bring people to Christ, which is a good thing but a failure to feed them and nurture them and help them in the development of growth. And so in his to-do list, look what he says in verse 15. I need you to be patient because Jesus is coming back. Consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has been written to you. Peter reminds the reader who is concerned or tempted to be discouraged, to lose heart over this issue of the second coming of Jesus. What's taking you so long? The 30s have already come and gone. The 40s have come and gone. The 50s have come and gone. I mean A.D. 30, A.D. 40, A.D. 50. You've got to understand when Peter was writing these words in the mid 60s. They were holding out hope. And so Peter says, I need you to be patient. Why? Because the long suffering of, of our Lord is salvation. Why does Jesus delay in part so that people can be saved? We have loved ones. We have mothers. We have fathers. We have brothers. We have sisters. We have people whose hearts are empty and hurt. Who need to come into a right relationship with God in Christ. I accepted Jesus as my Lord and my Savior on March 
1973. And rapture fever had burst, not only in Southern California, but everywhere in the world. Things were unfolding rather rapidly. And I would have been so thrilled had Jesus come back in 1973. But if he'd come back in 1973, that would have been a horrible loss for some of you. By the way, how many of you have come to Christ in the last 10 years? Raise your hand. Look around you. How many of you have come to Christ in the last 20 years? Look around you. How many of you have come to Christ since 1973? Yeah, look at Slim Pickens out there. But we thank God. We thank God that he's delayed. Because guess what? Heaven wouldn't be the same without you. Dr. A.T. Pearson wrote a biography of George Mueller. He was a great man of faith and a great man of prayer. And, and Mueller established a series of orphanages in England that was based exclusively on prayer and trust. Mueller never asked a single soul for a dime or a dollar, in this case a shilling or whatever else they use in England. Pearson wrote how Mueller prayed for the salvation of a group of five friends. After five years, one of them came to Christ. In ten years, two more were saved. He prayed for 25 years, and a fourth man came to Christ. In Mueller's own words, he said, and I quote, I myself have for 29 years been waiting for an answer to prayer concerning a certain spiritual blessing. He's talking about the fifth friend. He says, quote, day by day, I have been enabled to continue in prayer for this certain blessing at home and abroad in this country and in foreign lands, in health and sickness. However much occupied, I have been enabled day by day by God's help to bring this matter before him. And still I have the full answer yet. In other words, I haven't received the answer. Nevertheless, I look for it. I expect it confidently. The very fact that day after day and year after year for 29 years the Lord has enabled me to continue patiently, believingly to wait on him for the blessing this matter that I have often been enabled to praise him before him for the full answer which I shall ultimately receive to my prayers on this subject. Thus you see dear reader that while I have hundreds yea thousands of answers year by year I have also like yourself and other believers the trial of faith concerning Concerning certain matters, unquote. He prayed. And he prayed. And he prayed. And he prayed for this fifth man. And he prayed up until the time of his death. And this fifth man was one of the pallbearers at George Mueller's funeral. And he discovered something. That Mueller had not only prayed for him for 20 years and 30 years and 40 years and 40 years turned into 45 years and 45 years turned into 50 years and 50 years turned into 52 years. And the man received Christ. His heart was broken. His soul was empty. He knew that he was a sinner and that he needed forgiveness. And the answer to Mueller's prayer took place. John Phillips wrote, quote, such is the result when the persistence of a saint is married to the patience of a savior. God knows how to wait. He's waiting for you. He's waited patiently for you. God knows the truth about you and about your mother or father or brother or sister. 
And so Peter says, Paul also taught that God's delay, Christ's coming so more people can be saved. And in Romans chapter 9, verse 22, Paul writes about it. He says, what if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for his glory. It's Paul, Paul's way of saying he's waiting. There's judgment for the wicked and the unbeliever, but he continues to wait. But there's hope and patience and love for the people who will come to him. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 16, he continues, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things in which are some hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction as they do also the rest of the scriptures. Peter's advice gives way to admiration, admiration for Paul the apostle. And by the way, it's been years, perhaps decades, when Peter first met Paul and they formed a friendship and a fellowship. And then something happened. Paul went to Galatia. He established churches. He told the Gentiles that there was a God who loved them and was willing to save them by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But Jews came from Jerusalem. To try to undermine their faith and their confidence. And by faith, I mean confidence that Jesus alone, his sacrifice alone, his death alone, his resurrection alone creates the mechanism whereby people can be saved. And all of a sudden, Peter started to play the hypocrite. When the people came up from Jerusalem, he stopped hanging out with his Gentile friends and he started hanging out with his Jewish friends. But Peter was man enough to own up to his wrong and saint enough to refuse to harbor bitterness and resentment towards Paul. Peter calls Paul beloved brother Paul. Peter also declares that he had access to an understanding of Paul's writings now, you, do you understand what this means? That means that those writings were written and read prior to this epistle, which was probably written maybe in 64, 65 A.D. Peter doesn't hesitate to call the writings difficult to understand. I don't know if you've ever opened up your Bible and started reading the book of Romans and going, I don't know what... What does this mean? In a way, I love it when you say that because it, it's sort of job security for me. <laughs> Peter makes no bones. He, he, he basically says, hey, it is difficult to follow the content of his writings. But even when he affirms their difficulty, he also affirms their authority, their authenticity and their integrity. He goes so far as to say that untaught and unstable false teachers twist, pervert, torture Paul's words to the false teacher's destruction. In a single sentence, he affirms integrity, authority, authenticity. And I want you also to think about the context. Peter's context is patience for the saint who is suffering under the burden of pain and persecution and perhaps impatience. When are you going to get here? When are you going to get here? Jesus, I just need you to come. I need you to come and, and be here and end all of this. Peter declares in no uncertain terms that Peter's theology and Paul's theology are in complete agreement concerning the condition of the saints, the unfolding events that are taking place, and how they're to be understood in the light of Christ's coming. And so, Peter may be given a gentle jab, not to be confused with a Gentile jab, that Peter says, look, I'm going to make this so plain and so direct that even you can get it. Note what Peter says. Speaking in them, that's Paul's writings, of these things. What things? 
why Paul's teaching on the second coming of Christ. Why Paul's teaching concerning you're to be patient until Jesus gets here. Paul's teaching that those who despise the riches of his goodness and forbearance and long suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads us to repentance in Romans chapter two, verse four. Do you know why he's waiting? Because someone, you know, and someone you love, their heart has not been broken and they've refused to come to Christ. Won't you pray for them? Won't you, like Paul says, pray that the God of this age, the small g, will drop the scales from their eyes and the bitterness and the anger from their heart and the resistance from their life so that they will come into a right relationship with God in Christ? And when he says these things, he's talking about Salvation by grace alone. He's talking about the second coming of Christ. False teachers would twist and distort Paul's teaching on justification and sanctification and glorification. Some people would come to the wrong conclusion that Paul was teaching that it doesn't matter how you live just so long as you believe in Jesus. And nothing could be further from the truth. Because the grace that he talks about and the faith that he talks about and the love that he talks about is a grace and a faith and a love that transforms your thinking and your feeling and the way that you live. So Peter equates Paul's writings with scripture. The Greek scholar A.T. Robertson says, quote, there is no doubt that the apostles claim to speak by the help of the Holy Spirit. He quotes first Thessalonians 527 and Colossians chapter four, verse 16, just as the prophets of old did. And he refers to second Peter chapter one, verse 20. If you just turn the page, knowing this first, that no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation. In other words, the Bible isn't what you simply think that it is or how you interpret it, but it is what it is. And it says what it says. And sinner can't mean saint. And lost cannot be found. The Bible says that we're sinners in need of a savior. That we're sinners in need of forgiveness. And so. A.T. Robertson writes, and I quote, Peter thus puts Paul's epistles on the same plane with the Old Testament, which was also misused. He quotes Matthew 5.21, Matthew 15.3, Matthew 19.3, when Jesus was dealing with the religious leaders in his own day. Remember, he said to them, you search the scriptures because in them you think that you have life, but they are those which testify of me. Here's, here's Jesus' own words. Genesis, it's about me. Exodus, it's about me. Leviticus, it's about me. Numbers, Deuteronomy, it's all about me. And remember how absolutely upset they were? You're not even 50 years old. How can you say all of this stuff is about you? Because the revelation that's been given in the Bible has to do with the reality of how you can have a right relationship with God in Christ. Michael Green writes, quote, there can in any case be no question that long before A.D. 60, Christian writings were being read in church alongside of the Old Testament and consequently were well on the way to being rated as equivalent in value to it. The point is this, the apostle the apostles were conscious that they spoke the word of the Lord. That's what Paul says in First Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. As surely as did any of the prophets, there is nothing, therefore, unnatural about their placing each other alongside the Old Testament prophets. The same Holy Spirit who inspired the prophets was active in themselves. That is quite enough to explain how Peter could have put Paul alongside the Old Testament writers in this verse. Big, who's... The International Critical Commentary remarks that, quote, so far from having an inferiority complex about Moses and the prophets, the apostles believed themselves to be even higher in the purposes of God. St. Paul sets apostles before prophets in Ephesians 4.11. And it follows from 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12, that the Christian evangelist is superior to the old prophets as Christ himself is superior to Moses in this sense. The Bible says, the law came by Moses. 
But grace and truth came by the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the law came not to make you a better person, but to remind you of what a bitter person you are. If the, if the law says anything, it testifies to the reality that you're a lawbreaker. If the law says anything, it says that you've said the wrong thing and you've done the wrong thing and you've misrepresented God, you've done stuff that is wrong, and that's why you need a savior. In the 1980s, James Sire wrote a book entitled Scripture Twisting, 20 Ways the Cults Misread the Bible. And in the preface of his book, he talks about an event that took place in San Francisco. When Swami Satchitananda, the head of the Integral Yoga Institute, speaking to a capacity crowd at the Masonic Auditorium said, Blessed are the pure in heart, Jesus said, for they shall see God. Moments later, the Swami explained the words of Jesus this way. Yes, blessed are those who purify their consciousness, for they shall see themselves as God. Who is right? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you that there's something inside of you that says that's not right. That's not true. That becomes a perfect example of how to torture and twist the scripture and make it say something that it in fact does not say. Sire does a commendable job of showing how people don't simply misrepresent the words of Jesus. The moment you take the liberty to misrepresent the words of Jesus, you are giving yourself permission to misrepresent Jesus. And the moment you give yourself permission to misrepresent Jesus, you give yourself permission to misrepresent God. And let me tell you something, when that happens, you're in trouble. They misrepresent Jesus. Some of the scripture twisting tactics include quoting the Bible in an inaccurate way, excluding a key word or a key phrase, using twisted translations like the Jehovah's Witnesses to make the text say something it doesn't say, ignoring the immediate context, selective citing, confusing the definitions, embracing esoteric interpretations, ignoring alternative explanations that are consistent with the character of God and historic Christianity supplementing biblical authority or rejecting biblical authority. And he understands something. He understands that those people who do this, they do so in order to deceive you. Because you know what the false teacher will invariably do? Because the false teacher wants to live wickedly and think wickedly. The false teacher gives you permission to live Wickedly and think wickedly. In other words, the false teacher encourages you to follow them in their false lifestyle. And so he says, I need you to be patient because Jesus is coming back. I need you to believe that the Bible's true. And then he says, I need you to exercise discernment. Look at verse 17. You, therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware, lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked. Now, Peter addresses the reader as beloved. You know what it is? It's a term of affection and endearment. It's like when a husband calls his wife honey or sweetheart or when you're a mom or a dad and you have a little baby boy or you have a little baby girl and you say to your little baby girl, what a pretty girl. I love my pretty girl. I'm hoping that one day my grandchildren will listen to this tape. I love my ball baby. Isn't it incredible how someone with no hair and no teeth can be so attractive? You love them. 
Peter's heart is motivated with love. Peter loves God's people. And it's that love that prompts Peter to warn the reader. That a great day of judgment is coming. That a terrible day of judgment and destruction are coming upon the ungodly. And the reader has read Peter's letter. And now they are responsible for the content of the letter when he says, since you know this beforehand. He assumes that you haven't just fallen into the text. You haven't just opened up your Bible to Second Peter chapter 3 in this particular passage. There's a reason why I teach the beginning of the book and the middle of the book and the end of the book. Because you become responsible for the whole book. Beware, he says. You should underline it. Beware. Stay on guard. Keep your guard up. Do not relax. Well, it's Gino. I can relax. No, don't relax. Be a Berean. Evaluate what I'm saying, whether these things are so. Search the scriptures. Determine whether or not what I am saying matches with what the Bible has to say. Beware. It was Lenin who said, we will find our most fertile ground for infiltration of Marxism within the field of religion. Because religious people are the most gullible and will accept almost anything if it's couched in religious terminology, unquote. And you know what? Lenin was right. He's wrong about atheism and he's wrong about Marxism and he's wrong about communism, but he's right about Christians. I've got good news and bad news. Which do you want to hear first? The bad news? The stupidest people I've ever met are Christians. You ready for the good news? The smartest people I've ever met are Christians. The most intellectually honest and vigorous are people who know and love the Lord Jesus Christ, who know and read the Bible, who think carefully and biblically. They think long and hard. It's not true of every Christian. But it's true of some. And you're given permission for it to be true about you. You have the freedom to ask Hard questions and expect biblical answers. He warned the reader that the false teachers tactics and about their future destruction, the believers not to be carried away with know what it says, the error of the lawless losing their own stability, lest you also fall being led away. It means to be carried away. It means to be led astray. It means to be led into error. The expression also fall can be translated fall once and for all. The implication being that there are some people who reject Christ and reject the Bible, who come to church week after week and month after month, who, who wake up one morning and they say, I'm, this is nonsense and I'm never going to do it again. They get seduced. They begin to believe the lies. By the way, is it possible for a believer to be misguided? What do you think the answer is? I think the answer is yes. Can a believer be misled? I think that the answer is yes. Can a believer be misinformed? In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, Paul writes, Now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, the last words in Paul's 
life. He basically says in verses 3 and 4, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers and they will turn their ears from the truth and be turned aside to fables. Do you understand what he's saying? The time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. They will substitute the teaching of the Bible for the feelings in their heart. I don't feel that way. I don't feel that way. I don't feel that God would ever send anyone to hell. Really? You think you're nicer than God? You think that God won't judge the wicked? Do you think that the pedophile who engages in child sexual assault, who in their mind and in their heart think that they're doing the child a favor, are they going to get away with it? Here's an even more important question. Should they get away with it? In what world, in what world, in what world is it ever right to torture a child? In what worldview can you come up with that? And so here's what they say. They'll substitute teaching for feeling and they'll substitute the truth for lies. And so Paul says, you need to endure sound doctrine. Oddly enough, the objection to Christian doctrine doesn't come from the unbeliever on the outside. It's not the unbelieving world that is so much upset that you happen to believe the Bible. The controversy comes within the camp of so-called Christians. Doctrine is called irrelevant, impractical, divisive, unspiritual, unknowable. But doctrine is relevant. And it is practical. It isn't divisive. It unites. It isn't unspiritual because Jesus said, my words are spirit and they are life. And rather than being unknowable over and over and over again, all you have to do is open up your Bible to any given page. Go to the concordance. Read where it says these things have been written so that you would know that you have eternal life. These things are written so that you can know that you could experience forgiveness and hope. These things are written so that you can know that you're going to heaven rather than the hell. These things are written so that you can know what you need to know in order to respond in the right way to what God has for you. Christians have to be willing to judge truth from error and good from evil. We are commanded to judge unrepentant sinners in the church in Matthew 18, 15 and 1 Corinthians 5, 9. We're commanded to judge teachers of false versions of Christianity in Romans chapter 16, verse 17. And in Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. False teachers are to be identified by name if necessary in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 17. And the church is to be warned not to support their false teaching. People who are not grounded in the truth can often find themselves persuaded by what seems like a logical or a biblical argument, but the behavior or the belief has the net result of being included. Look what it says with the error of the wicked. Here's what Peter is basically saying. You will adopt the instabilities of the false teacher that you follow. So he issues the warning so the believer can stand firm and be faithful. Are you still skeptical? Do you believe that the scriptures are joking when it warns about false gospels, Second Corinthians eleven four, false doctrines, Romans sixteen seventeen, false miracles, Matthew twenty four twenty four, false gods, Matthew twenty four twenty four, false Christs, Matthew twenty four twenty four, false spirits, Second Corinthians eleven four, false prophets, Matthew twenty four twenty four, false apostles, Second Corinthians eleven thirteen, false teachers, First Timothy chapter one verse seven, and turn the page. To Second Peter chapter two verse one, but there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them and bring on themselves swift destruction. 
In order for false gospels, false doctrines, false miracles, false gods, false Christ, false spirits, false prophets, false apostles, and false teachers to not be a problem is for you to delete all of those passages in the New Testament and the Old Testament, for that matter, which deal with them. And so, on your to-do list, be patient, Jesus is coming. Pray, because people need to be saved. Exercise discernment, but now he ends with grow in grace and in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Look what it says, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and forever. Amen. In the first epistle of Peter, the theme was grace. In the second epistle of Peter, the theme is knowledge. And now he ends both writings. Grow in grace. Grow in knowledge. And again, in one sense, I want you to think about the context. Growing in grace and growing in knowledge becomes a form of resistance in dealing with false teachers and false teaching. When you're growing, you're glowing. Grace is a gift. We're admonished to grow in grace. What does that mean, to grow in grace? In a nutshell, it means conformity to Christ. If we were to do it in one simple sentence, growing in grace means becoming more and more like Jesus. That's very simple, isn't it? It becomes more and more like Jesus in the way that you think, in the way that you speak, in the way that you act. And by the way, to grow in knowledge means to gain an ever increasing understanding of Jesus and an appreciation of his redemption. I've devoted my whole life to knowing what the Bible has to say about this subject, about justification and sanctification and glorification. But guess what? All I have done is scratch the surface. There's so much more that we could know. Peter uses the present imperative verb tense. We could translate this. Keep on keeping on growing in grace. Ongoing growth, ongoing maturation limits the possibility of a terrible fall. And so the Christian life begins with grace and it continues with grace and it ends with grace. We're encircled by grace. We're upheld by grace. We live in a world where life is changing all around us. Sin changes us. It destroys us and it corrodes us. Spurgeon said, if grace does not make us differ from other men, it's not the grace that God gives his elect. It's not the kind of grace that allows you to live in wickedness and rebellion and disobedience and separation from God. John Piper writes, quote, grace is not simply leniency when we've sinned. Grace is the enabling gift of God not to sin. Grace is power, not just pardon. Therefore, the effort we make to obey God is not an effort done in our own strength, but in the strength which God supplies. It's God supplying you the power. Physical growth and spiritual growth have many similarities. We grow from the inside out. Do you know what babies inside the womb have in common with babies outside of the womb? Babies have everything that they need that, for growth. They have a complete set of DNA. They have all the little internal organs necessary to grow. The only difference between you and a baby is time and nutrition. With time and nutrition comes the person sitting next to you. Look at them real quickly. Yeah, time and nutrition. That's what, that, that's what time and nutrition did to them. I love being a grandpa. You know, I noticed that babies need food and they need exercise. But you know what else they need? A stockpile of diapers. Like we're talking industrial strength stockpile of diapers. And there's a couple of ways of looking at diapers. One is the way you're thinking of right now. And the other way is to rejoice going, 
baby's esophagus is working. Baby's stomach is working. Oh, look, baby's large intestine and small intestine, they're both working. I know, it, it seems crazy that you could be so thrilled that all the little internal organs are working. And you see, that's why a pastor can be thrilled. Not that all of your little functions are working. But that they're working and the reality is that you're growing and you're maturing and you're changing. We have everything that we need in Jesus, but we grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Savior through adequate nourishment and energetic exercise and communication skills. Did you know that babies can sign before they can speak? My little bald baby, she goes like this. That means milk. This means Water. This means no. She understands that concept. And she's not even a year old. Peter ends the letter. The false teachers have been exposed. The believers have been warned. Now what do we do? We put it on our to-do list. Bible study. Prayer. Meeting with each other. Worship, the word, the work of sharing Christ. Have you put church at the bottom of the list again? Have you put prayer at the bottom of the list again? Have you put Bible study at, at the bottom of the list again? Did you put patience on the list? Did you put discernment on the list my friend Bob Bowman has written a book called Orthodoxy and Heresy, and in it he has a chapter entitled The Ten Commandments of Discernment. He admits that the list isn't exhaustive, but this is what he puts on the list. Number one, learn to exercise discernment while growing as a Christian in faith and love and holiness. Number two, develop a thorough and sound grasp of Scripture. Number three, learn to think in a logical, sensitive manner. Number four, study Christian doctrine from a variety of traditions within Orthodox Christianity. Number five, learn as much relevant information as possible about a questionable teaching or religion before making any judgments. Number six, base your understanding of questionable doctrine on those who espouse it what they say about it themselves, but do not assume that the use of orthodox language guarantees orthodox beliefs. Number seven, treat the information supplied by ex-members with both respect and due caution. Number eight, in, in uncertain or borderline cases, give the benefit of the doubt to the person or group in question. Number nine, begin with foundational matters. That's his way of saying begin with the essentials of Christianity, the deity of Christ, the, the nature of salvation. And he says, number 10, consult with reputable discernment ministries that honor biblical principles of discernment. You know what? If ever there was a time to participate, it's now. You know, there's, an, an, there's, there's absolute powerful, powerful opportunities in our children's ministry. God is at work and the Holy Spirit is at work. There are men's groups and there are women's groups and there are student groups and there are foundation groups and there is Minnow on Friday and there is Dialogue on Tuesday. There's, there's Poema. There's all kinds of opportunities for you to participate. And maybe, maybe it's time for you to take seriously your commitment to Christ. And your desire to know more and more about them. Martin Luther said, when we have God's word pure and clear, when we think ourselves all right, we become negligent and repose in vain security. We no longer pay due heed, thinking it will always so remain. We do not watch and pray against the devil who's ready to tear the divine word out of our hearts. He said that over 500 years ago. A real devil is looking for an opportunity to rip you off. Guess what? Nothing's changed. I hope you put it on your to-do list. There's probably no more important thing on the list than to walk across the bridge marked grace. 
Have you taken that journey? From darkness into light? From death into life? Have you come to the realization that you're a sinner in need of a Savior? Have you asked Jesus Christ to be that Savior? Spurgeon, again, way over a hundred years ago said, Ah, the bridge of grace will bear your weight, brother. Thousands of big sinners have gone across that bridge. Yea, tens of thousands have gone over it. In other words, way before the biggest loser was on TV. People weighted down with sin have tried to cross over this bridge. I can hear their trampings now as they traverse the great arches of the bridge marked salvation. They come by the thousands, by the myriads, ere since the day when Christ first entered into his glory. They come, and yet never a stone has sprung in that mighty bridge. Some have been the chief of sinners, and some have come at the very last of their days. But the arch never yielded beneath their weight. I will go with them, trusting to the same support. It will bear me over as it has borne them. It was big enough to carry Peter across the bridge. And Paul. And James and John. And Wycliffe and Luther. And Spurgeon. And me. And you. It has never yet collapsed under the weight of wickedness. Because no matter how dark and no matter how evil and no matter how wicked your heart. Jesus promises that he'll forgive you. And he'll save you if you'll let him. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father. I pray for that person in the dark and lonely place. In the guilty place. The person who's weighted down, who's experiencing the crushing weight of their own sin and how they desperately want to experience forgiveness. And Heavenly Father, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would issue the invitation that they would receive forgiveness and hope. That they would remember the scripture that says, for as many as received him to them, he gave the power to become the children of God. And Heavenly Father, I pray that you would reach out. And for that person, Lord, I pray that they would just fill their hearts with the simple words. Heavenly Father, I know that I'm a sinner. That Jesus Christ has promised that he would forgive my sins and that his sacrifice on the cross is the satisfying solution to the problem of my sin. And I receive him now. I pray that he would take my wickedness and sin and bury it, never to be seen ever again. And Lord, I pray with Peter that Jesus would have all of the glory, both now and forever. Amen. Let's.